1953, Iran had a very deep-rooted and significant pro-democracy experience. It had a popular democratic leader who was in power, who had a lot of popular support. And that coup effectively put an end to what I think was the best prospects for democracy Iran in its modern history. That's Nader Hashemi, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Nader Hashemi on Iran, the struggle for democracy. Zhou Enlai of China once said, One of the delightful things about Americans is that they have absolutely no historical memory. Perhaps the former Chinese premier was being too harsh, but then again, maybe he wasn't. Take the case of Iran. Some people remember the 1979 hostage crisis when Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 53 Americans hostage. But how many recall the coup the U.S. engineered that put the Shah back in power, thus crushing democracy in Iran? The consequences of the coup were enormous and ultimately led to the establishment of the Islamic Republic of Iran. While Iran remains a repressive theocracy, the struggle for democracy, spurred by women and young people, continues. Our guest today is Nader Hashemi. He's director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding at Georgetown University. He was previously the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. I talked with him on August 24th. Welcome to the program. Huge honor. I'm sorry I can't do this in person, uh, but next time, inshallah, as they say. Well, 70 years ago, August 1953, in Operation Ajax, the U.S. and U.K. overthrew the liberal democratic government of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. The coup restored the Shah to power, where he would rule until the 1979 revolution, which led to the creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. In a recent comment, the well-known Iranian dissident Zahra Ranavard compares the Islamic Republic of Iran to the regime of the Shah. What is she getting at there? Well, I think the main argument uh, in Ms. Rahnavard's uh, observation is that the modern uh, history of Iran has been characterized by a steadfast and consistent denial of the people of Iran to their right to self-determination that existed prior to the 79 revolution when the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran was in power, and then after the revolution when um, the hardline Islamists eventually consolidated power, they did have popular support, but increasingly over the last 44 years, they have become just another Middle Eastern authoritarian regime denying the people of Iran their right to self-determination. So I think that's the comparison and the parallel that's being made by um, this very heroic opposition leader. The death in Iranian state custody on September 16th, 2022, of the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, Jina Masa Amini, it ignited a wave of protests across Iran. 
a crime, a dress code hijab violation. What's your analysis of where that movement is uh, almost, well, a year later? Well, the movement, the uprising, which really rocked the Islamic Republic to its core, uh, has largely been suppressed by the forces of the state. But it still exists one millimeter beneath the surface in terms of the demand for full female autonomy, women's rights, and a broader critique and desire for structural transformation in Iran in the direction of human rights and democracy. Uh, so as we're approaching the first anniversary of Massa Amini's death, uh, we're seeing in Iran, really over the last several months since the start of the summer, a renewed crackdown on women's rights activists, intellectuals, minority groups, fearing that this first anniversary is going to reignite those protests for women's rights, for human rights and democracy. So the movement has been crushed, uh, but not the aspirations. I think looking back when the history of this phase of Iran is written, uh, the death of Massa Amini and the protests that emerged will be a, a key reference point. I think it marks a shift, a psychological shift in the attitudes of many Iranians toward the regime that rules over them. So that's where things stand. Some analysts said the protests that followed her death were somehow, the word that was used was different from previous uh, uprisings. And talk about that and the prominence of women in the protests as well as ethnic minorities. Iran has large populations of Kurds, Arabs, Baluchis, Azeris, and others. So this is the first time in post-revolutionary Iranian history where women and their rights to equality, um, their human rights, their rights to full bodily autonomy has been uh, the spark that ignited the protests and encouraged other people to come into the streets. So in that sense, uh, these protests are very different. They were sparked by the death of an innocent woman, and they quickly morphed into demands for um, structural political change, uh, democratization and human rights among large segments of Iranian society, including, as your question points to, the participation of minority groups, specifically the minority Baluch population that exists in southeastern Iran near the Pakistani border, and uh, the Kurdish population, which, which exists on the opposite side of Iran and roughly the northwestern part, uh, we have seen large scale and widespread and some of the most deepest and sustained protests in these parts of Iran for reasons that are easily understandable. One, minority groups, particularly ethnic minority groups, suffer from greater discrimination in the Islamic Republic of Iran. They suffer from higher levels of unemployment and poverty. So they have more reasons uh, to protest. But also, in the case of the Iranian Kurds, Masa Amini was an Iranian Kurd. Her death really touched a core in the, um, the city where she was from and where she was buried. In fact, the slogan that has come to characterize this phase of Iranian protest, you know, women, life, freedom, Zanzindigi, Azadi, was a protest that began at her funeral uh, roughly a year ago and then spread and really became, you know, the anthem for uh, defining this phase of, you know, Iranian protest struggle against the Islamic Republic. And also it should be pointed out, David, that um, some of the highest number of casualties over the last year were actually sustained 
in the uh, Baluch province. Uh, there was one actually particular day, again, almost a year ago, where close to 100 Iranian protesters in, in the capital city of Baluchistan, Zahedan, were shot after Friday prayers, many of them in the back after they uh, were protesting. Um, and one of the key characteristics of this protest is the presence of a very senior Sunni cleric. He's the official Friday prayer leader in Zahedan, who's been really leading the charge and mobilizing um, Iranians of an ethnic Baluch background, protest for their rights and, and their dignity. And what's so interesting is that the Islamic Republic has not been able to remove him, knowing that had he been toppled or removed or arrested, it would have sparked greater protests in Baluchistan province. So I think those are very important you know, aspects that I think mark and distinguish this phase of post-revolutionary Iranian protests from previous ones. And how do religious minorities, um, Jews, uh, Zoroastrians, Armenian Christians and others, how do they fare in the Islamic Republic? Well, not very good. I think the worst case of persecution is the Iranian Baha'i community. They've been targeted for really brutal, systematic attempts to really annihilate them. Um, the other minority groups that we discussed and that you just mentioned, they don't fare very well. There's discrimination. There is um, greater economic suffering, but it's not the same type of persecution and whole-scale whole repression that the Iranian Baha'i community has, has suffered from. So it varies from, you know, community to community. I think Armenian Christians actually are relatively well off compared to the other groups. Interestingly, the Iranian Jewish community doesn't fare very well. It's living under an authoritarian state, and frequently its leaders are targeted for being alleged spies for the state of Israel. But still, notwithstanding the 44 years of um, existence of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Iran still does have the distinction of being and having the second largest uh, Jewish community in the Middle East. It's significantly diminished, but those people who have visited and studied and met with uh, the status of the Iranian Jewish community. Many of those uh, Iranian Jews feel very Iranian. They don't want to leave. They don't want to go to Israel. They don't want to go to the United States. They want to try and exist in very difficult circumstances in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so their situation is very precarious. But, you know, the situation of all Iranians, regardless of whether they're part of the majority group or minority group, is very precarious. And that's just one of the features and hallmarks of authoritarian political systems. In your article, Women, Life, Freedom, you write, I'm quoting, the mobilization of Iranian women for equal rights can be attributable to several factors. What are they? Well, I think the fact that the factors that really shape this particular uh, movement was really the lead up to the protest that began roughly a year ago. I think you're quoting from the piece that I that I wrote, you know, early on in the early days of the, the protests. And there was a series of events uh, that really led to this this uprising. And if you follow the events closely, as I was doing at the time, um, as Iranian hardliners started to sort of claw back and take over institutions that were previously under the control of reformist politicians or political parties, one of the hallmarks of the Islamic Republic, and particularly the hardline worldview, is this attempt to regulate um, the behavior of women in public spaces. And so you started to see a steady but consistent crackdown on women's public presence in Iran. So, for example, before women uh, and men in the Esfahan uh, Philharmonic Orchestra 
were allowed to perform in, in public places without any concern or harassment. That all of a sudden ended, where women were not allowed to perform with men in an orchestra. Um, you started to see women who were singing in public arrested. You started to see women who were on a public bus and would get into an argument with some other more conservative uh, religious-leaning women over the role of public dress would be arrested and paraded on television and forced to confess for um, alleged sins in, in trying to sort of demand greater rights for women. So there was a series of events that really, I think, were leading up to uh, a major catalyst and explosion of protests that happened right before Massa Amini's death. In many ways, you know, Massa's death in police custody was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and led to this massive you know, protest movement that lasted for several months and really rocked the Islamic Republic to its core. You write the crisis in Iran today is fundamentally about authoritarianism, not Islam per se. Now, that would go counter to most people's belief that the Islamic Republic of Iran is exclusively about Islam. Well, the defining ideology of the Islamic Republic is Islam, but it it's important to point out it's just one particular interpretation of Islam. There are many Iranian Muslims who disagree with this particular interpretation of Islam. Um, they're silenced. They've been forced to leave. Um, so if you, if you actually look at what's happening in Iran, and there's actually a deeper history here um, that is often ignored in the reporting um, in Iran over the question of women's rights, and the desire for bodily autonomy. From the inception of the modern state of Iran in the 1920s and 1930s, authoritarian political systems, um, whether it was under the Pahlavi monarchy or under the Islamic Republic, have tried to control and regulate the behavior of women in public spaces in conformity with a particular ideological project. So just to cite one example, in the 1930s, the, the father of the Shah that was deposed in 1979 a man by the name of Reza Shah woke up one day and literally decided he wanted to do something for Iranian women. And so he ordered his troops onto the streets of Tehran to remove the veil or the chador or any head covering from the head of any Iranian woman at bayonet point. And this was a huge shock to a conservative religious society at the time. Many women at the time did not go out in public because they felt that the state would try to, in their eyes, forcibly disrobe them. And it was a huge shock to a conservative society. Um, the, the successor's son, you know, wasn't as draconian in terms of trying to regulate women's dress code, but did basically have a model for an ideal citizen that was very much in keeping with this secular modernist westernization sort of view of how a proper Iranian woman citizen should behave. There was never any freedom of choice or freedom of, you know, um, of expression for Iranian women. It was very much the state had a model that they wanted to emulate. And if you didn't follow that model, well, then there were consequences. And so the Islamic Republic comes in 1979 and with their own authoritarian mindset, decides to create their own model citizenship. Uh, and when it came to women, that meant wearing a particular dress code. And if you didn't accept those new rules, you would find yourself in trouble by the state, arrested, harassed, forced to go to educational sort of schools to learn the proper way to behave. And so this is very much part of a longer story. And I think it very much is about, you know, authoritarian political systems and mindsets. I mean, one of the good things that I've actually noticed in the, in the last year of protests is you have a lot of Iranian religious women who voluntarily choose to wear the hijab, supporting their more secular sisters 
industries demanding the right to, you know, full female bodily autonomy. So in that sense, I say this this moment in Iranian history and politics is very much about the politics of authoritarianism. It's not about Islam. There was a significant uprising in 2009, particularly around the whole issue of of voting, and there were large crowds. In fact, those crowds seemed in numbers larger than what turned out in 2022, 2023. Is, Is that accurate? That is accurate. So in the aftermath of what was widely perceived as a stolen election in June of 2009, there was actually, there was a major protest that happened a few days later. Um, In fact, the date was June the 15th, 2009. I was following events very closely. And the Islamic Republic itself admitted there were 3 million people on the streets of Tehran alone protesting a stolen election. So in that sense, those elections, I think, did produce larger numbers of people on the streets in the major cities. I think the difference this time around is the numbers haven't been as bigger, but the participation of people in smaller towns and villages and of a younger age cohort is really what distinguishes this phase of Iranian protests. So they're wider in the sense that these protests, in contrast to 2009, are taking place in more cities and towns. And the demographic and economic, I think, background of the people protesting this time around in 2022 comprises, I think, more people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds who were really frustrated over the state of politics and the state of the country. Back then, it was largely a middle class urban movement that was protesting rights and freedoms and a stolen election. The other, I think, key aspect, and we know this from official figures that the Islamic Republic has published, Most of the people on the street over the last year that were arrested and that the Islamic Republic has admitted to was a very young age cohort, roughly 15 to 25. Iranians over the age of 25 over the last year did not come out onto the street in big numbers. And that raises some important questions. And my explanation for that is that the brutal sanctions that have been imposed on Iran Um, comprised with and and complemented by the massive economic mismanagement by the regime has produced an economic devastating uh, scenario where if you're over 25 and you have a family, to not go to work at a protest effectively means that the next day your family doesn't eat or can't survive. It becomes very costly and very difficult to, I think, sustain um, popular mobilization under dire economic conditions. And so that, I think, explains the demographic uh, numbers in terms of why this was largely a younger cohort of of young kids that were protesting, demanding rights and freedoms, as opposed to a more older uh, constituency. Talk about the whole issue of sanctions and their efficacy. Cuba, 60 plus years. Iran, 40 plus years. You'll also recall the sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s and up to the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. Who gets hurt? Well, it's the average citizen who gets hurt, and that's the tragedy. Uh, Average citizens who have no say over the policies of the government that rules over them, they pay the price. And of course, this has, I think, a very catastrophic effect on the ability of citizens to mobilize and organize and fight back against authoritarianism. So in that sense, I think the sanctions that have been imposed on Iran, really by Donald Trump when he tore up the nuclear agreement, and imposed what um, his advisors called crippling sanctions, has actually hurt the average Iranian citizen 
has actually hurt the particular constituency of middle-class young people and their parents who, you know, you would hope would participate in, in popular mobilization against the regime. And that raises the question, so why are these sanctions there in the first place? And my own reading, specifically with respect to Iran, and I think this also applies to Cuba sanctions, is that these are sanctions that are usually imposed by the United States, largely for domestic American political reasons. In other words, politicians, mostly from the Republican Party, but also from the Democratic Party, find it politically advantageous to claim that we have applied another layer of sanctions on Iran. Look how tough we are. Look how you know strong we are in fighting get back against uh, the authoritarian policies of the Islamic Republic. On the other side of the equation within Iran, they actually undermine the struggle for democracy. They target innocent people. And they actually, in the case of Iran, and I'm prepared to advance this argument, actually strengthen the regime, all things considered, particularly the hardliners who have you know, their own ways of avoiding sanctions and maintaining their income and their status of living. So all things considered, I think these sanctions are catastrophic. They hurt innocent people and they fundamentally undermine uh, the struggle for democracy in Iran. You mentioned the U.S.-Iran agreement that uh, Obama negotiated in uh, 2015, which Trump uh, nixed in 2018. Why hasn't, I mean, is it because of those political domestic reasons you just uh, referred to that uh, Biden has not revived the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? Well, Biden came into office as a candidate claiming that he wanted to revive the Iran nuclear agreement. But what we saw is that when he came into power, he was very slow in dragging his feet to resume negotiations. That pushed the clock back. And then it overlapped with the departure of the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, who was very much in favor of the nuclear agreement. In fact, he negotiated it with the Obama administration. There was a series of negotiations that took place in Vienna. uh, And by the time they were reaching fruition, the Rouhani administration's time had run out. A hardline Iranian president came in who was dedicated to opposing the JCPOA. And so in many ways, one can make the argument that one reason why the, the, the agreement wasn't revived was really the slow motion approach to these talks by the Biden administration. And following why the Biden administration was so slow, I think they were you know, trying to pursue negotiations to make sure they were uh, politically compatible with the temperature here in Washington, D.C. Um, they didn't want to present themselves as being soft on Iran um, and that's pushed the clock back. And so there was a there was a window of opportunity, I think, that we had uh, uh, under uh, the Iranian, former Iranian President Rouhani that perhaps could have revived the JCPOA. But that window now has effectively closed. It's an open question whether those talks can be revived. And of course, one of the big concerns is that without a nuclear agreement, the chance of a military strike or a military campaign uh, against Iran's nuclear program remains very high, either by the Israelis or um, or possibly by a future Trump administration. People forget this, that when Trump was actually in power, on at least three occasions, we came very close to a military confrontation with Iran uh, under the leadership of Donald Trump. And so the big fear is that if the Republicans come back into the White House in 2024, we could be on the precipice of another war in the Middle East, uh, just like we were when Trump was in power. The president that uh, succeeded uh, Rouhani was, is um, Ibrahim Raisi. 
You talk about him in terms of the Talibanization of Iran. What are his politics? Is he a cleric, by the way? He's a cleric. He comes from a very sort of, he's married into a very well-known hardline family of, of clerics. Uh, he's basically viewed as a, a mouthpiece for the Iranian supreme leader. He lacks charisma, uh, very much, you know, reads from the playbook of Iranian hardliners. And he came into office claiming that, look, one of the problems that we have in Iran today is that we've forgotten these revolutionary, allegedly Islamic ideals. And we have to go back to those ideals that were, you know, foundational to the Islamic Republic. And of course, one of those ideals, and this is one of the pillars of the Islamic Republic, is the attempt to control women's lives in public spaces. And there was too many women not observing the hijab, exercising a lot of liberties. And when he came to power, he promised to uh, change that. And that's something that I should have mentioned in, in response to an earlier question, David. One of the successes of this uh, women's rights protest in Iran is that if you go to many major urban cities in Iran today, you see a lot of women just walk around without the hijab. They've effectively reclaimed public spaces, and the regime doesn't have the willingness or the security uh, personnel to chase every woman around the city and impose the hijab forcibly uh, on their heads. And that, in many ways, is an important victory, that you see that larger numbers of Iranian women have voluntarily just defied the national hijab laws, thus reclaiming these public spaces. And it's an open question whether the Islamic Republic, if it wants to, can reimpose those policies back on the heads of Iranian women. They're trying to do new tactics, if you're following the debate, using surveillance uh, technology, facial recognition technology to find women if they're if they're caught photographed without the hijab, making it more costly for them to you know exist in Iran or to charge businesses if an if a non-hijab wearing woman goes into a business, they'll find the business, those types of tactics. It remains to be seen whether that'll be victorious, but these are very much the policies of the Islamic Republic of Iran and Iranian women are very much at the forefront of the struggle for for rights and freedoms. What sectors of Iranian society support the government and comment on the influence of the Revolutionary Guards, a kind of state within a state with its military and economic power? It's tough to measure how much support the Islamic Republic actually has. I would give, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say roughly perhaps 10 to 15 percent. And that's comprised of, I think, people who are religiously conservative and buy into the narrative of the state that this is an Islamic society. And if you're a good Muslim, you have to listen to the supreme leader. I think that's mostly an older generation. I think even from within this conservative uh, religious constituency in Iran, the younger generation is very skeptical and I think much more independent minded. And then like any authoritarian political system that has a lot of money, in this case from the sale of oil, you have people who support the system, not because they ideologically buy into the narrative of the authoritarian regime, but because their livelihood, their income is dependent on supporting the political status quo. And so the Islamic Republic employs millions of people either directly or indirectly. And this is a source of support for the, for the, for the regime. And these people know that if the regime were to topple, they would lose their livelihood and the advantages that they have. The IRGC, the Islamic um, Republic Revolutionary Guard Corps, is a um, uh, the most powerful and significant uh, military institution in the state. The origins of their existence um, go back to the dawn of the Islamic Republic, where 
the, the, the revolutionary leaders of Iran believed that the existing Iranian military trained by the Americans would not be loyal enough. So we needed another military force in the case of a crisis that would support the revolution and um, be there to protect uh, the revolution. And that's where the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps was formed. That's why they were formed. Um, roughly uh, two decades after the Islamic Republic was formed, you started to see large parts of the Iranian economy being taken over by the military in ways that are very similar to the Pakistani military, the Egyptian military, and other military regimes. In other words, this gives the Revolutionary Guard Corps an investment, an economic incentive to fight for the status quo, because now they have accrued huge profits by virtue of their control over the economy. And they are known now to control, you know, depending on the estimates, 30 to 40 percent of the Iranian economy. They're thus a major player. And it's generally known if there ever is going to be a democratic transition in Iran, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, their institution will be taken down because they're so deeply connected with the, the, the ruling regime. And thus they have a lot to fight for. You're listening to Nader Hashemi on Iran, the struggle for democracy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, 1-800-444-1977. Or go online or website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, the U.S. and Iran, despite all the adversity, are actually talking. Uh, Witness the mid-August deal where five U.S. citizens will be exchanged. It hasn't happened yet, but that's the idea. Five U.S. citizens will be exchanged and for Iran to access $6 billion in oil revenues that have been frozen due to U.S. sanctions. The deal is on track, according to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. But don't get too excited. That's me saying that. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, Nothing about our overall approach to Iran has changed. We continue to pursue a strategy of deterrence, of pressure, and diplomacy. So that deal um, that you referenced is a reflection that the two countries are talking, but they're really talking over uh, the status of these uh, Iranian prisoners, uh, Iranian-American prisoners, who effectively are hostages and they're being bartered or bargained exchange for sanction relief. If you look at the details of what's uh, been negotiated, the idea is that um, Iran will not have direct access to these frozen funds that are actually right now in a South Korean bank account. But the money that South Korea has will be transferred to Qatar and Iran will be able to charge food purchases and medicines to that account, which the Qatari government will then process and then send to Iran. And, And in that way, the Biden administration can claim that they're not giving into Iran, they're not sort of rele- releasing or relieving pressure, uh, that the existing sanctions still stay in place. Um, the official position of the Biden administration is that food and medicine are not part of the sanctions regime. Uh, in exchange for that going forward, these uh, Iranian-American hostages will be released from Iran roughly over the next you know, four to five weeks. But as you said correctly, David, um, we re- that remains to be seen. A University of Colorado professor was concerned about 
that money, once it's returned to Iran, would go into the pockets of the mullahs and the ayatollahs. So you just addressed that a mechanism has been set up where, at least in theory, that won't happen. Exactly correct. If you look at the New York Times reporting on this, by a very good, at least, uh, um, reporter who covers Iran, Farnaz Fasihi, when she broke the story, she goes into considerable detail of exactly what was negotiated. Unfortunately, a lot of um, commentators on Iran, I think, don't know the details and think that, you know, this is $6 billion. It's going to go in the pocket of the Supreme Leader to spend as he wishes. No, that's not what has been negotiated. And anyone familiar with the details will, I think, affirm that fact. The U.S. recently increased its already extensive military presence in the Gulf, accusing Iran of seizing and intercepting ships. There's an always an on-again, off-again cat-and-mouse game with threats and counter-threats, saber-rattling and warmongering, and then there's a kind of cooling off. These ebbs and flows have continued throughout this decades-long confrontation between the two countries. Now, to talk about Israel, which has the most right-wing regime in its history, might it launch an attack on Iran and the consequences of that? Well, there's always that fear that Israel will claim that Iran is getting close to producing a nuclear weapon and it has no choice but to attack Iran. My own view is that I don't think Israel, even under this uh, extremely hawkish right-wing government, would, would be able or willing to attack Iran unless the United States gave their blessing. And the Biden administration is um, an administration that I think very much wants to focus attention on China, Russia, and, U and Ukraine. It doesn't want to get into another war. And so my sense is that the possibility of an Israeli strike over Iran's nuclear program is not really on the horizon, at least in the near future, but it's always a cause for concern. Were that to happen, then I think all bets are off and we're headed toward a major Middle Eastern war, which we came pretty close to when Trump was in power. And, and the moment that I'm referring to was very much in January of um, 2020, when uh, Donald Trump ordered the assassination, approved the assassination of Iran's top general uh, in Baghdad, Qasem Soleimani, leading to an Iranian retaliatory strike on American uh, military bases in Iraq. And then there was a fear that Trump would then retaliate against Iran for hitting the American military bases. And Iran at the time announced that were the United States to hit Iranian targets within Iran, Iran would go after Tel Aviv and Dubai, thus leading to a, an immediate regional war. Thankfully, there was de-escalation. But at that time, I remember speaking to a journalist, very much fearful that we were headed toward another Middle Eastern war. So that's that's why I'm very concerned about the future, because, you know, one wrong misperception or misunderstanding can easily trigger a war. There is no direct communication on a consistent basis between the two governments. And without that, the, the possibility of, you know, a misunderstanding, someone seizes a ship and then there's a perceived sort of counter response that could easily escalate into something quite catastrophic. It would be suicide for the government in uh, Tehran to launch any kind of a military action against the United States. I mean, they'd effectively be, you know, committing suicide. Correct. And I think the regime knows that. And it's important to realize this is not a, um, a regime that has lasted 44 years by accident. It calculates very carefully. And in terms of its foreign policy and defense strategy, it pursues a strategy um, known as passive defense, 
rooted in asymmetric warfare, knowing that it can't you know, confront the United States and its military prowess face to face. So it engages in this types of, you know, tanker battles, seizing hostages um, of dual citizens is a way that the Islamic Republic in a very sort of deeply unethical way, basically ruining, ruining the lives of innocent people who go to Iran to visit family, then they end up in it in prison and then used as bargaining chips. Um, these are the tactics of the Islamic Republic that it uses to get concessions and leverage from the United States. And unfortunately, this is going to continue until there's some sort of, you know, shift on both sides, on one of the two sides. I mean, there was a lot of hope, I think, when Obama was elected and he negotiated the the nuclear agreement that we had turned the tide, that this would lead to perhaps, you know, a a significant reduction in tensions. And that was widely celebrated both within Iran at the time. People forget that democratic and human rights forces were very happy with the JCPOA at the time because it meant lifting of sanctions and there would be a chance for Iranian civil society and and the middle class to breathe. um, And that perhaps that would be a turning point. But of course, it wasn't to be because of the election of 2016, which brought, you know, Trump back to power and, and then led very, you know, very, we came very close under Trump several times to, to, uh, to a war with Iran. In an article, The Struggle for Democracy in Iran, you wrote, the U.S. has a unique moral responsibility to support democracy in Iran. Why is that? Is that because of the coup? Yes, because in 1953, Iran had a very I think, deep-rooted and significant pro-democracy experience that it was going through. It had a popular democratic leader uh, who was in power, who had a lot of popular support. And that coup effectively put an end to what I think was the best prospects for democracy, Ron, in its modern history. And of course, that coup was a CIA coup that was cooked up in Washington, D.C., in close alliance with the United Kingdom. And so one has to just ask themselves, you know, had that coup not taken place, had Mohammed Mossadegh remained in power, had the struggle for democracy continued on its own momentum and in the direction that it was heading, how different might Iran be today under a democratic political system? How different might the Middle East be today had that coup not taken place? How different might the Islamic world be today if in the heart of the Islamic world you had an authentic indigenous democracy that supported human rights. I mean, we we don't know the answers to those questions. But what we do know is that coup put an end to the best hope for democratic secular politics in Iran during the 20th century. Um, It led to the rise of a religious-based opposition politics, and it set the stage for the 1979 revolution. And then we know the rest of the history. So I think in that sense, Americans who are interested in uh, rewriting the wrongs of the past in questions of historical injustice have to, I think, view the case of Iran and the struggle for democracy in Iran with, I think, a unique moral responsibility because we put an end to the best prospects for democracy in Iran in 1953. And that should be part of the national debate. And it should inform you know, how Americans think about this topic. Unfortunately, it doesn't, but that's why I made that observation. In that same struggle for democracy uh, article, you wrote, authoritarian regimes are the key incubators and sources of instability in the region. They're not the answer. They are the core problem. Yeah, the view in Washington very much is that, look, these regimes, notwithstanding all their warts and shortcomings, um, they're the only game in town. Um, They protect our interests. 
They um, want to make uh, nice with Israel. They allow for businesses to invest in the region. They create a certain sort of tranquility and all of the other options allegedly are much worse. I'm of the view that that's a very short-term, very short-sighted and very immoral way to look at these authoritarian regimes. It's precisely these authoritarian regimes that I think produce the type of radicalism, ex extremism and instability that the region has seen in, its, in, in the last 50 years. I mean, just to cite one example, I can cite dozens. It's not a coincidence that on September 11th, 2001, 15 of the 19 hijackers came from one country. Saudi Arabia. And they were not the poorest of the poor. They were middle-class kids who were radicalized, thinking that the best way that they could make a contribution to their life on this planet is to engage in that type of suicidal violence. And so in many ways, this is part of the problem. I mean, getting back to Iran, you cannot understand, you shouldn't understand the 1979 revolution and what's happened since then, unless you understand the authoritarian policies of the uh, pro-American regime that the United States installed after the 1953 coup. It was precisely the policies of the Shah of Iran that created that incubator effect for radicalism and extremism that uh, culminated in the 79 revolution. So I think that's the way to view these things. Authoritarianism is not the solution to the problems of the Middle East. In many ways, it's the core problem of the instability in the Middle East. And see how it intersects with the U.S. foreign policy. And the hypocrisy and double standards of that policy have been a constant in the Middle East. Washington selectively supports authoritarian regimes such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia. You'll recall Biden labeled Riyadh as a pariah. And just recently, Human Rights Watch reports the Saudi killing of hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers. And the tragedy, of course, with respect to that Human Rights Watch report, David, that you just referenced, is as we are speaking, the Biden administration is in negotiations with the Saudis and the Israelis to provide security guarantees to the notorious crown prince of Saudi Arabia if he agrees to uh, sign a normalization agreement with Israel. On the hypocrisy question, we shouldn't be forgotten that, yes, there's always been double standards and hypocrisy, but so glaring at this moment um, is that we are um, uh, hearing from the Biden administration that our world now is facing a historic and cosmic struggle between the forces of democracy and authoritarianism. And of course, these are themes that are invoked in the context of Europe, Ukraine, Russia, that this is a defining moment. We have to rally around what's called a rules-based order. We have to oppose war crimes. We have to back democracies. The exact same members of the Biden administration give these types of sort of, you know, heroic speeches in Europe. And often on the next day, we'll get on a plane, go to the Middle East and embrace every single despot, dictator and repressive regime who stands for the exact opposite. And nobody picks up on the glaring inconsistency and hypocrisy. It's almost stunning how that doesn't evoke the type of outrage, but at least those of us who study the region, you know, are really, you know, taken aback by the ongoing insult to our collective intelligence that this type of hypocrisy continues to invoke uh, when we hear these, these, these speeches from our esteemed leaders in Washington, D.C.
Earlier this year, China brokered a deal to restore relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The two countries were loggerheads for quite a number of years. Why did Iran enter this agreement? And this must have been a bit of a shock to the U.S., which likes to It was a huge shock. Yeah, it was a huge shock to the U.S. It was a bigger shock in Israel. Iran is, you know, under tight sanctions. Um, I think it viewed relations with Saudi Arabia as a way of breaking out from the sanctions and the stranglehold that they've been put under by the American government, both under you know Trump and Biden. So in that sense, I think there was an economic incentive for the Iranians to, to sign that deal. Of course, Iran does want to get closer to China. It views China's role in the international system, particularly in the Middle East, as a counterweight to the United States' presence. So it was very much interested in having the Chinese broker a deal. I think that was really what was driving the Iranian side of the bargain. And you have also uh, Iran being invited to join the BRICS grouping of countries, you know, breaking away from the U.S.-dominated uh, global economic system. The significance of that, if it happens. I think it's significant. Yeah, I think it's very significant. I'm glad you raised it, David, because it, um, it shows that, um, in fact, the news today is that Iran has been formally admitted. And I think the significance of it is it shows that the United States will no longer be able to determine I think, which countries in the world, particularly in the Middle East, can be isolated and cut off economically from the rest of the world. Uh, Iran's um, membership into this organization will allow it to sort of um, have some leverage over U.S. foreign policy and sanctions. It gives it an opening to facilitate its economic relations with other countries. Now, I don't think that uh, that doesn't mean that U.S. influence over Iran ends tomorrow. It, it, It reminds us that I think global power politics are shifting, that the United States' ability to unilaterally write the rules, particularly in the Middle East, that that period uh, is slowly ending. I think the Iranians, the Iranian regime is going to try and exploit that for all it's worth. I think it has more symbolic importance. I don't think there's going to be a big economic shift in the reality of Iran's economy because of that um, admission to the BRICS group. But I think it does give us a sense of where things are headed for the future in terms of international relations. Iran is supplying weaponry, particularly drones, to Russia. Why? Uh, Russia is Iran's major uh, ally. It relies on you know, Russia's support at the UN Security Council. Russia and Iran have trading relations. Russia is now involved in war. It also, this is a way of getting back at the United States. The United States is heavily invested in the war in Ukraine. And so Iran has an incentive in supporting the major adversary of the United States and of the West, you know, in the context of the Ukraine war. My own sense, though, is that this talk about Iranian drones being a huge factor in the Ukraine war is somewhat exaggerated. Let's not forget that Russia is the superpower here and Iran is a, you know, a developing country. Iran is not known for weapons manufacturing. The talk that we're hearing about these Iranian drones in Ukraine being a a major factor, I think is disproportionate to the actual reality on the ground. So I think we have to keep that in perspective. I think what the real story here is why Russia, which is a major weapons manufacturer, why Russia had to rely on these Iranian drones so heavily. I think it's really a commentary on the sad state of the Russian military, that it's relying on a third world country like Iran to supply it with drones. I think much of the media frenzy over this is a is a, is a factor is a byproduct of the fact that look, two Western adversaries, two adversaries of the United States, are sort of engaging in military relations here 
to push back against Ukraine. And that's something that the United States doesn't want to see happen. And so there's a lot of concern over this. But I don't think it's really I don't think the war in Ukraine is in the condition that it's in because of these Iranian drones. I think that's largely uh, an over an overreaction. Like other parts of the globe, Iran has endured long periods of drought and record-breaking temperatures. What steps is the government taking to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis? Very little to my knowledge. And I think that's a um, an answer that applies to many other uh, authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. Authoritarians in the Middle, authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, their fundamental focus and obsession is staying in power and repressing dissent. That's where the energy, that's where the budget, that's where the, you know, that's the focus of policy, of, of politics in these countries, including in Iran. So there's been very little preparation for the looming catastrophe that has already hit the Middle East, but it's going to get worse according to all you know, reports that we have, the Middle East is disproportionately affected by climate change. Large parts of um, uh, southern Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, the Persian Gulf area will be uninhabitable in the coming years because of climate change. And there's been no preparation um, for this looming catastrophe. So this adds another layer, I think, of concern that the region is facing. Um, we're on top of all of the you know problems that authoritarian policies and U.S. and Western policy has produced for the region. There is now this problem of climate change that is going to, you know, have catastrophic effects, of course, on the poor and on the innocent and on the vulnerable. The rich and the affluent will have options to exercise, but those people who don't have those resources are going to be bearing the brunt of the climate change crisis, which is hitting the Middle East, hitting Iran in very catastrophic ways. And it's just an added reason to be very concerned about the future of this region. What's your go-to media source on Iran? I really like the Center for Human Rights in Iran. It's probably the most uh, credible, effective, competent, and reliable news source for events happening on the ground in Iran from a human rights perspective. It was founded by this wonderful, really brilliant human rights activist, Hadi Qaimi. They put out consistent reports. Um, then, of course, you know, there's... Because I can read Persian, I, I rely on a lot of the Persian language sources. The BBC Persian service has a wonderful reporting on events in Iran, really competent people. It's precisely because of their high quality journalism that staff members, Iranian staff members at the BBC in London are targeted by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Their families are arrested and harassed because they do such reporting and you know, all um, reports are that within Iran, it's the BBC Persian service that's the most popular because it it does pr provide that type of, you know, accurate um, news coverage. Uh, the Guardian, you know, has, I think, good coverage of Iran. I follow what Human Rights Watch puts out on Iran regularly. And so those are those are the main sources. There's good journalists. I think actually the New York Times journalist on Iran, Farnaz Fasihi, does cover Iran with a lot of competency and, um, and honesty. So th those are the places that I turn to. Where do you see the struggle for democracy in Iran heading? Well, I think it's going to remain in a state of paralysis. You know, it's going to have its ebb and its flow. Uh, the regime is still very much in power and it's willing to use a lot of violence to stay in power. So I don't anticipate any changes in the short term. But I think one thing to watch for is when the current Supreme Leader dies. He's 85 years old. 
I think he has maybe at most five to 10 years left. When he passes from the scene, because he is the most powerful figure in the Iranian political system, that's going to be a moment of crisis that perhaps democratic and democratic forces in Iran can exploit. It's not going to be a moment of uh, celebration for hardline forces in Iran. It's going to be a, a moment of deep uncertainty. And so that's something to watch for going forward with respect to the future of Iranian democracy. There's always the question of uh, what people can do in terms of solidarity uh, to improve uh, human rights in Iran and the struggle for democracy. I think there's a lot that can be done. U.S. policy remains a problem. I think these broad-based sanctions need to be rethought, removed, and applied in a much more systematic way. I'm strongly in favor of targeted sanctions against people who have blood on their hands, but I would be much more in favor of, of sanctions that don't affect the average citizen in Iran, and that actually is used in more constructive ways to advance the struggle for democracy in Iran. There's no, I think, you know, easy answer there, but that's, I think, one problem. So being vigilant in terms of what U.S. foreign policy is toward Iran is something that people can be doing. And on a much more practical level, I think we claim that we support the struggle for democracy in Iran in the United States, but we make it very difficult for Iranian students to travel here. So I think having an immigration policy that makes it easier for Iranians who want to come here and study or live, that's something that can be done. I think also supporting the work of courageous human rights defenders I mean, there's a lot of very heroic Iranian human rights defenders in Iran, many of them who are in and out of jail, some of them who are in prison right now, people like Nargesa Mohammadi, like Nasrina Setudeh, follow their lead, follow, you know, um, what they can tell us about how to better support the struggle for democracy in Iran. And one of the things that I learned actually from you, David, a very long time ago, was an interview that you conducted with Professor Noam Chomsky when you know, he made the observation and it really resonated in me. He said that if you want to help a group of people on the other side of the world, you have to at, at the beginning exercise some humility and don't presuppose that you know what the answers are for them in advance. You need to consult with, familiarize yourself with organically connected, credible leaders in the community that you're hoping to help. Listen to what they're saying and then adjust your advocacy and activism in close coordination with those organically connected democratic leaders. So that is, I think, um, a rule of thumb that I have when it comes to helping, whether it's the people of Iran or any other community fighting for democracy and human rights. You have to familiarize yourself with those leaders that have street credibility and that can guide us in our activism. So that's the advice that I give to people. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. You were just listening to Nader Hashemi on Iran, the struggle for democracy. Nader Hashemi is director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding at Georgetown University. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, Uma Shakur, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
For copies of today's program, Nader Hashemi on Iran, the struggle for democracy, and for the book, Retargeting Iran, featuring Nader Hashemi, Azadeh Moevani, and others, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.